And I just left the stuff out there and I continued to smoke crack. I was still in the midst of my addiction, so I wasn't really concerned about it. I was more concerned about the fact that I wanted to get high. And I said, well, you know, maybe that's it. You know, maybe she's done with me. And it was very sad, you know, because after I finished getting high, I came down. It was a very sad, sad time for me because I started reflecting on the fact that here I am again, I've hurt somebody else. You know, I just didn't want to hurt people anymore. I just, you know, I was doing the same thing to Tracy that I had done to the other two wives, you know. I just, it just became very saddening to me that I, that I was still that same person. I was selfish, self-centered, very sick, didn't care, wasn't about who they were, it was about who I was. And that's where we end up at, as people that's in the midst of addiction. You end up, it's all about you, it's not about others. You don't care about how they feel and what they're going through. Um, you're more concerned about how you feel and what you're going through. You know, from that place there, you know, I had I had to move forward. I had to uh, come to reality that, you know, I, I got to get my life together. I got to try to figure out a way to get on track. And I, even after that, I didn't get on track. Hi, my name is Dr. Chuck Betters, and this is an interview with baseball legend Daryl Strawberry and his wife, Tracy. You will hear them transparently describe their personal descents into the darkness of alcohol and drug addiction and where they found help and hope that took them back into the light of day. Now, their story will not only encourage the drug addict that there is help and hope, but it also gives family and friends insights into what makes a drug addict choose drugs over family. This interview is part of our Learning to See When the Lights Go Out audio library. Now, Sharon, please tell our audience a little more about these interviews that do indeed offer help and hope to the hurting. Sure, Chuck. This interview with Daryl and Tracy is one of many in our Learning to See When the Lights Go Out audio library produced by Mark Inc. Each one is available as a free download at markinc.org. Each resource addresses a life crisis that is often experienced in isolation. In each interview, we hear a story of help and hope where the participants take us into the darkness of loss, grief, disappointment, all emotions caused by unexpected life circumstances that turn their worlds upside down. You can access these resources free of charge at markinc.org, where you'll find stories that address loss of a loved one, breast cancer, adultery, addiction, terminal illness, adoption, even a special series just for military families, and many more. Daryl and Tracy Strawberry's Stories of Addiction is a powerful addition to this library of help and hope. Thanks, Sharon. It's a great privilege to share this time with Daryl and Tracy Strawberry, who know what it is to experience great success and wealth and then to also lose everything. They not only share help and hope for those trapped by drugs, but they also use their own broken marriage to offer help and hope in their book, The Imperfect Marriage. Now, I have read Daryl's books when he gives us the inside story on his own baseball career, and we hope that this interview will entice our listeners to read the Strawberries books because they have so much more to offer than what we can cover in this resource. Now, let's get on to their story. When people refer to Daryl Strawberry today, they usually talk about what a great baseball player you were and what a tremendous fall you had. Daryl Strawberry, the one who lost it all. And I know you're here today to tell that story, that particular story. I'd like to start with what seems to be a theme that you repeat again and again and again in your book, which is really a raw record of your life story. You talk a lot about your dad. You talk a lot about this relationship with your dad that was anything but a loving and caring relationship. And even as an adult, as a, as a successful baseball player, his words keep coming back to you. 
his words were, you will amount to nothing. Yeah, thanks for having me. My dad was a raging alcoholic. He would come home night after night drunk, and he would stir up the, the chaos in the house with my mom and for no reason. And then we woke up one night, clearly, and we had had enough. We were about 13 years old, and we had had enough. And my older brother Michael told him, why don't you just get out of here and leave us alone? It was five of us, plus my mom. And he pulled out a shotgun, and he threatened to kill all of us. And at that point, we went into action immediately. My brother Ronnie went into the kitchen, grabbed a butcher knife, and I grabbed a frying pan. And we, we said to ourselves, he's going to be the one that dies tonight. Because before that, we had already had beatings from him for little infractions that we did as a kid. And just little things. He would make us take off our shirt, lay across the bed. He used an extension cord from the vacuum cleaner that he had cut off. And, and he, would, he would beat us you know, with our shirts off. So we had suffered a lot of... Uh, a lot of stuff inside of ourselves as kids. And, you know, me and Ronnie took the most beatings. Um, he n- never put his hand on the girls, and he never really actually um, touched my brother Michael. And we suffered a lot. And that night after my mom realized that that was it, she had to do something. And she realized that my, my kids are going to get hurt or somebody's going to get hurt. So before I even put on the uniform, there could have been a tragedy in my life from the beginning right there. And I think most people don't even know that. They just know I put on the uniform and I excelled and became a baseball player. But we all we came close to killing my father that night, and my mom got us out of the house that night. And then after that, my father was no longer there. She had finally drew the line there that uh, this is it. You you got to go. You know you have actually put my kids in a place in, in in a danger where they they possibly could kill you. And how long how long was he gone? He was gone from the time I was like 13 years old. Uh, there was no more. No more him around. And actually, once he got out of the house, you know, it, it was a gift because, you know, me and Ronnie looked at each other and we said to ourselves, no one, and I mean no one, will ever control us again. And what did you mean by that? I meant nobody would ever tell me what to do. Nobody would ever tell me how to live. I was going to do whatever I wanted because I was so damaged inside. Of course, you could see people, they look good on the outside, but the inside was damaged so much. And there was so much scars and, and issues that were that were there because of the fact of my father saying we would never amount to nothing. I believed it. I, I just went on with doing whatever I wanted to do from that point on. You were, what, 13 years old when he pulled the shotgun that night? 13 years old. And your brother, your brother Ronnie's older than you? He's 14. 14, and then you had another brother. Michael was 15. Michael's 15. So you were the youngest of the three brothers, and you had... Two sisters? Two sisters. And how old? Were they younger or older than you? 12 and uh, twelve and 11. So there's five children and your mother and an abusive father. Yes, he was very abusive for a very long time. When your mother made the decision for him to be put out of the house, uh, how did you survive? How did the family survive at that point? Well, we only survived on you know, my mom working. She was a secretary at the Pacific Telephone Company. And plus, he was given a little child support, which was $25, you know, for each kid, which really wasn't nothing. It was just a very, it was a very difficult time for us. My mom raising five of us, but she did it. My mother was very short and, and petite, and, you know, the strength that was in her to take care and raise her five children was incredible. It seems as though you had a lot of trouble actually staying on a team or staying in a school. Tell us a little bit about that. I got in a lot of trouble because I was wounded, wounded inside. And I really didn't have a lot of confidence in myself. I had low self-esteem and, you know, I didn't really believe in myself. 13, 14 years old. And I was always getting into trouble. I was always getting into fights. And I was smoking marijuana already at that age. And 
And I was, you know, getting high going to school every day. And, and I would go to school and I would set the bathrooms on fire, you know, because I didn't want to go to class and want to go to first period. It was just all kind of things that were, were coming out. You know, I was very angry at that age, at a young age, you know, that I didn't have a father figure in my life that's, you know, teach me things and tell me that it was okay and give me a hug and to help me through school or anything like that because my mom was working all the time. It was just us. We had to go home and try to figure out, you know, who's going to help you with your homework and who's, who's going to help you with this. And you had to do it yourself. Were you positively influenced or negatively influenced by your, your brothers and your sisters? Well, I was positively influenced by my, my sisters and my brother, Michael. My brother Ronnie was—he became a terror too. Became a real terror more than I did, you know, at that age. You know, once my father got out of the house, you know, he started really fighting. He started breaking in homes. He started stealing guns. He started, you know, shooting at people, and he started doing a lot of things that I didn't want to do. I saw a lot of things at that age when I was down in the neighborhoods with all the guys got together and got on the street corners and and shot dice and got out there and smoked weed and drank beer. And I I did some of those things, but I didn't want to get into the part of breaking in people's homes and stealing guns and and, and starting to to do crime. I was afraid of the crime. You know, I wanted to have fun, but in, uh, at the same time, Ronnie got into the crime of doing things that, that I thought was wrong, you know, and I remember him breaking into a home and bringing like 10 guns to the house and putting them on the, under the bed. And I said, you got to get those out and we can't have that in the house, in mom's house. And he did get them out because unfortunately the police comes the next day and they're looking and they search the house and, you know, he got the guns out of the house. So you had a reputation in the community when the cops were looking for somebody, they would come to your place? Not for me, you know, I, I, I think a lot of times for my brother Ronnie because he was hanging out in the streets a lot. After my father left, he, he went straight to the streets and, and, and he went to the trouble, uh, what the streets are all about. And there was no coming back for him. He wasn't returning. I, I didn't go completely into the streets. And, you know, after my days of junior high school, I got kicked out of about four or five different junior high schools because I was doing things that they that you just can't do. And I didn't show up to school, you know, for like two months at a time. They realized, you know, my mom was dropping me off every day at the bus stop and I wasn't showing up going to school. And, and they eventually kicked me out of school. You played sports when you were in those various schools, didn't you? My first year in high school, I started playing sports and sports became attractive because high school was different than junior high school. They had basketball, football. So I got into sports and I played baseball and football. And then I remember one day running off the field, baseball field. And, and that was pretty popular coming out of Little League Baseball. And my high school coach, I remember running off the field one day and then I kind of walked walked at the end to the duck, across the field, the line and stuff. And he came and thumped me in the head and said, don't you ever walk off this field again. And I took the uniform off and I quit. What did he do? Nothing. I mean, I just took the uniform off and I threw it in his face. How old were you? That was my first year in high school. So I was like, 16. Does that go back to the nobody's ever going to control me again? That's what that was all about. And you felt anger toward him when he was trying to in, impose some sort of rules? Is that Was that the deal? Well, I, I had been through that before, and it just didn't feel good. You know, I felt embarrassed. You know, I felt like he was showing me off up in front of everybody. And, you know, as I walk off the field, it's a game. And I walk off the field, and he just comes and thumps me in the head like that. I said, don't you ever walk off this field. I took that uniform off, and I threw it in his face and said, I quit. What happened after that? I just walked off the field and I just quit. Did you get tossed out of that school too? No, I didn't get tossed out of school. And how did you return to play? Well, I didn't return until the next year. After school was over, you know, I thought about you know, a lot of things and I thought about how wrong I was and maybe I needed to change. Or maybe I needed to change some ways about myself and, and maybe I needed to apply myself a little bit better. Was there anybody, any men in your life in these junior high, senior high years that served as a mentor to you 
Well, I had a lot of coaches that were, were, were involved in my life and that would make me go to practice and would come and pick me up. I had this one coach, Mr. Mosley. I used to tell my sisters, tell him I'm not home. He goes, I know he's, I know he's in there sleeping, huh? Because I was lazy, too. You know, I didn't want to do anything. And they would say, yeah, yeah, he's in there and, and quietly. And he would come in and he'd get a cup of water and he'd come in there and I'm laying in bed and he'd pour it in my face and, and make me get up. Make me go to practice. So he he was he was a big influence on my life because he he spent a lot of time with me. And he says he said to me, "I know you're angry. I know you don't have a father, and I know it hurts." And he says, "I could never be your father, you know, but maybe I could be a father figure to you. Maybe I can help you actually deal with what's going on inside. I don't know if I can." And he was he was a big influence on my my life. And my coach Earl Brown was a big influence on my life, who I played for in the summer. And then I came back to high school. And me and my coach sat down and we had a meeting and we talked and I apologized and I told him I needed to grow up and I, I wanted to do something different and I needed to get myself together and really try to move forward and playing, coming back on the team and playing. And we both agreed and he apologized to me. He said maybe, I th- you know, maybe he was wrong the way he handled that too right in front of everybody on the field. Maybe he should have handled it better. So he became a mentor in my life and we grew a relationship. It sounds like that coach had a somewhat of a, a, a positive influence on you. He did. Coach Brooks did. And Coach Mosley? Coach Mosley and Coach Earl Brown. I had three coaches that had a tremendous effect on me. These coaches really actually started me on the road of being disciplined, going to class, and being a student instead of just being someone just figuring, well, you're just going to play no matter what. Because they wouldn't let you play. They, 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 there was no playing. The basketball coaches wouldn't let you play. And if your grades weren't right, if you wasn't in class, you wasn't going to play. And, and playing was important to you. Well, playing was fun. You know, playing was fun. See, sports were always an outlet to me because I was hurting inside. Even this whole time in high school, I was hurting because I really had just come from this dysfunctional lifestyle. My dad, I had hated him, you know, and it was a really hard place. There was no love there because we were, we were lost without a father figure in our life. And I was starting to play sports in high school and, and all these other different areas. And I never had my dad at the game to come see me play. You know, my mom made it when she could because it was impossible. She was raising five kids. She was working every day. The weekends came. She needed the weekends off. I was always off playing ball at some park, you know, with my friends and stuff, playing in the league. And she had no idea, you know, at the time that I was turning out to be this great baseball player. Now that you look back and you've had a, an extensive baseball career, how commonplace is it for men like you, gifted athletes, to have a childhood that is as dysfunctional as yours? It's very common. Uh, it's very no- normal in inner cities because most inner city kids that grow up comes from a broken home. There's no father there. And you have to grow up early. You have to grow up at the age of 13, uh, learning how to play little league baseballs and going to the little league parks on your own catching the bus and whatever you have to do because you don't have a father figure there for you. It wasn't until Mr. Mosley came into my life and Earl Brown came into my life and these coaches came into my life and then they start picking me up and taking me to the game. You know, they just loved us and, you know, we just never had that before. I mean, I never had that as a father figure, you know, and here all, all these different men were coming into my life and, you know, they were just loving on us and, and helping us and believing in us and telling us what we, you know, what our gift was and what we were capable of doing. And what was happening with Ronnie at this time, your brother Ron? Ronnie was completely out of control. He was gone. He never went to school. Smart as ever, never went to school. Ron was in the streets. There was no turning back for him. He was, he was like the Tasmanian. You know, you, there was no stopping him. You couldn't tell him anything. 
I remember one time we were down playing basketball at the elementary, and it's a group of guys and all friends, and we are having fun. And I was getting pretty good, and I was down there just showboating and dunking on people and, and talking crazy. And, and and some of the guys wanted to fight me, and Ron jumps in, you're not fighting my little brother. You're not messing with him because he's dunking on you. And, and then he ran me off. He threw a trash can at me and ran me home and told me never come back down there again. Because he knew the culture. He knew the culture. He knew what was going on down there. And I came back down there one day, and we were all shooting dice one night on the ground. It was night. And all of a sudden, someone hits the corner and shoots a shotgun, and fire comes out of this shotgun and robs a crap game. We all run and jump over in backyards and stuff. And from that point on, I never went down there again. Once I saw that one, once I knew the violence that were down there, I was like, this is not for me. I could actually have been killed that night. Tracy, while Daryl was growing up, you were growing up at the same time. Was your life anything like his? Nothing like his. My life was completely opposite. Tell us about it. I grew up in a wonderful family, loving parents, loving home. Um, Parents who were very responsible, vacations, family dinners every night, love, affection, three sisters. We had a lot of fun together. But I always stood out. I was the black sheep of the family, and for many years, I didn't understand myself. I had a personality that was prone to excitement, depression, deep thinker. Why am I here? What is this all about? It was almost as if this great, grand, wonderful family atmosphere wasn't enough for me. As you were thinking about life and and the black sheep part of being in the family, when did that become obvious to the rest of your family? I would say around age nine or 10. I was very strong. My voice was very strong. I would pick fights with my sisters and I didn't want anyone to tell me what to do. But I loved my family. I loved my parents. I was very respectful. I never dishonored them with my words. But I was the type, I wanted to break curfew. If they said be home at six, I wanted to be home at seven. I wanted to do what I wanted to do and I had a very difficult time controlling myself and obeying, if you will, listening to direction. And how did they respond to that, your parents? I mean, did they did they think, what, I mean, the, the other three girls are angels. What's wrong with Tracy? That's Was exactly it, what they like, thought. <laughs> what do we do with this child? Where did yeah. she come from? <laughs> yeah. So what did they do? They had a very difficult time with it. And my mother would try to reach out and talk to me, but a lot of it was kind of swept under the rug. They did, really didn't know what to do with me. They tried to love me through it. They tried to ask me what I needed, but nothing worked. Nothing was good enough. And it caused division between, especially my father and I, to where there was silence. He just stopped engaging with me. I stopped engaging with him. Daryl says that he used drugs for the purpose of hiding or dealing with his pain. What pain were you dealing with? What pain were you hiding? I was molested when I was a child by a neighbor when I was eight years old. And I really don't talk much about my childhood because I don't know if I blocked it out. I don't have a whole lot of memories. If you ask me who my teachers were, um, if you ask me people who were important in my life, I don't remember a whole lot of those things. And I don't think I realized at a young age just how much that changed my world. I simply went home after these things took place and just tried to act like or pretend that this thing never happened, that it never happened. And this individual threatened me if I ever told my parents that um, he would harm my family, he would tie them up and burn our house down. When you're young, you believe these things. 
as children, we're supposed to be taught what love is and have this molding in our mind of what love is, not to be introduced to such a violent act that completely distorts the natural intention of what it was created to be. And that happened to me, but I didn't realize that was happening to me. I was too young. I was never going to tell my parents because I didn't want anything to happen to them. I love my parents. So I was going to keep this secret and just go on with it and carry this secret. And I did that for many, many years until later on in high school when things started to play out in my life in a much more severe way. The pain that I was hiding was, number one, buried pain that I didn't even realize was there. I couldn't put my finger on, why do I feel this way? Why is everyone else normal and I'm not normal? What is wrong with me was my big grand question. I never tied that to anything that happened in my past. You were created with a need and you weren't finding that need being met in your traditional family setting, it sounds like. That's what you're saying. So then when you became a teenager, you're more in control of your surroundings. What happened? I wanted to be in control of everything. And my idea of being in control was being out of control. I just, I thought, well, I wanted a lot of attention and had this energy in me that just couldn't be tamed. I wanted to see the world. I was always talking about, I'm going to live somewhere else, and I'm going to live on the beach, and I'm going to go to New York City, and I would watch movies on TV, and I want to be her, and I want that life, and because I couldn't figure out what life I wanted. Going to school was boring to me. Doing homework and things of that nature, I would do it because my parents told me to. So I was a good student off and on. That was the story of my life. Strong starter, weak finisher. I would always quit. Boys started giving me attention at a young age. I liked that. So I started heading in that direction very young. I just thought boys were like my dad. They're just good, and they'll treat you the right way. I was very naive. Tracy, in your book, The Imperfect Marriage, you start out by telling the readers a bit about your life and how you met Daryl. And we meet you in your book as a recovering addict. And so tell us how you started that journey into addiction. Yes, my journey into addiction was really just social. There was some kind of excitement in the atmosphere. People were laughing and they were having fun. So it started out really from a social aspect, being very young. And I always wanted to hang out with older people. So older people were doing older things. So when I was a teenager, you know, the boys in the neighborhood who were drinking and had these sweet sayings, if you will, it caught my attention. It didn't take much for me to fall into something that was exciting or something that could be dangerous for me later on down the road. So just experimenting very young. Um, when I drank, I felt more calm. There was a calmness that would come over me, almost like a false comfort that was there momentarily for a minute because I had a hard time feeling comfortable around people, even though I was very much a people person. I didn't feel confident within myself, so I was very uncomfortable around people. So to join the party, it's just what everyone else was doing, so you really didn't have to create a facade. You could just become whoever you were with a drink in your hand, and that was acceptable because it was so dysfunctional most of the time. After it gets past that phase of socializing, for me, it grew into something much deeper. But you're in a nice neighborhood, and how did you get the drugs, and how did you pay for them, and how deep did it go? 
parents, wherever they are, have to train their children up about drugs and don't go with the wrong associations. It's like a broken record. Don't have the wrong friends. Don't do the wrong things. Don't hang out with these people. We tell our children this all the time. My parents told me that all the time. But those were the people I wanted to hang out with. I felt comfortable there. I was fine there. So you couldn't tell me not to hang out with them because that's where I made up my mind and that's where I found my comfort. So finding it at school, going to homes after school where parents were at work, and just participating in those normal high school, which I'm talking about, high school things. I would miss the bus and just walk across the street, and there were subdivisions there, and groups of us would just hang out. It was the alcohol in the home. It were drugs that came around that people started to share. And so at first, when I was younger, I really didn't have to pay for a whole lot. But then it turned into lunch money. Then it became my turn. So lunch money turns into buying what you can. When children are younger, lunch money turns into everybody put our lunch money together when we want to try something different. So it just creates this atmosphere of you can get what you want if you try hard enough. We, I didn't rob. I didn't steal. I didn't do any of those things. None of that. None of those things happened. When I was younger, I learned manipulation early. So I learned also as addiction kind of took hold of me and I didn't even realize that it was taking hold of me. I learned to date the boyfriends who had the drugs. I dated the guys that knew somebody who knew somebody. So without even being aware, I positioned myself appropriately. As your life is unfolding, I'm picturing you as a teenager and really having all the fun that you think you're having, but making choices that are going to have dire consequences later. You're in high school, you're playing the game, you don't realize that you're in that platform of life where you're actually manipulating people to be able to supply you with the drugs that you want. How does that play out as a young adult and then into adulthood? Looking for an outside answer to make yourself right on the inside is always a disaster because it will never be enough. An outward experience is not going to take care of the inward pain or the inward issue. So I kept on running. So I thought, well, let me recreate my parents' life because they're happy. I came from a happy home. So maybe I'll get married. Maybe that will calm me down, settle me down. So I make a decision that I'm going to change my dream and I'm going to recreate what my parents had and I'm going to try to be more like my sisters and be more disciplined and see what I can do with that. So I tried college, but I was still partying, going out with friends. We were getting older. And that's when I met my first husband. I was 19, just coming out of high school, just started nursing school, trying to get through that. And I loved helping other people. With as crazy as I was, I always had this heart to help others. So I started to go to school and I started to date him and he was Puerto Rican. So he was nothing like I had ever seen before. So there we go again with this excitement. It's different. It's new. He's Puerto Rican. He's, he has a thick accent. He listens to different music. And I was drawn to him. So I made my decision. This is the path I'm going to take now. So you got married. You said first husband. So how long did that last? Not very long. Not very long. By the time I was 21, we had gotten married. It was very dysfunctional, of course, because I was not equipped to be a wife. And neither one of us were equipped to be married. We had three children quickly. I had three children in one year because I had twins. Here I am with this life that didn't turn out to be like my parents, and he's not my dad, and I'm not my mom. The fairy tale is not taking place because we don't know how to be married. We don't know anything about 
the plan of marriage, what it takes to be marriage. Faithfulness was out there. We didn't have the character that we needed to be good to one another. And we have these three beautiful children who now are later on going to pay the price because we can't stick it out. We can't stay. And we're both selfish and we both want what we want, trying to figure out this thing called life. And it doesn't work out. And were you involved with drugs at that time? Were you still using drugs? Actually, he loved to drink. So I made this decision, I'm going to be a good wife, so now I'm no longer going to do the drugs. Now I don't have this set thing in my mind that I have to do them. And my drug use wasn't nearly as heavy as my drinking was in high school. I was a little more afraid of the drugs than I was, so I kind of stuck to smaller, safer things, if you will. My drinking was my issue in high school. So when I met my husband, I was going to do it right. And when I was pregnant, I didn't even take an aspirin. I really loved the idea of having these babies. But also, I created another facade that this was going to fix me too. This is going to change me. So I'm going to have these babies. I'm going to have this family and this life. Tell us a little bit about your journey into the major leagues and how you were introduced to drugs. Well, my journey was real. It was real hard from the beginning. But it was real easy at the beginning to start. Let me just say that first. Because I was drafted in 1980 by the New York Mets out of high school. I was the number one pick in the draft. So they came and got me out of class and said, you've been drafted. I says, okay, great. They said, no, you're the number one pick. I says, okay, that's nice. And I said, well, who drafted me? And they said, the New York Mets. I said, the New York Mets. I said, where the heck is New York at? Because I hadn't been out of Los Angeles. And all I knew about baseball was the Dodgers versus the Cincinnati Reds. I was a Dodger fan, and um, I just knew that the Dodgers had so many rivalries with the Cincinnati Reds, and that was a big rivalry in baseball when I was growing up, and, and I loved that. And they said, you're going to be headed to New York. And I was a little excited, you know, the fact that I got drafted, and four players off my year before team had got drafted. The next year was my turn, and I, I ended up being the number one pick. And there was a lot of excitement going into that uh, draft that day when my mom dropped me off, and they pulled me out of class. And there I was. There was the media there taking pictures of me here. I'm 18 years old, and they're talking about the Mets. And, and it started from there. And I eventually ended up signing and, and going to rookie ball down in Kingsport, Tennessee. And I remember after signing and going to rookie ball and playing my first year there, I called my mom every night. I says. I want to come home, you know, because I'd never been anywhere before. And here it is. I was in Kingsport, Tennessee, coming from Los Angeles, California. Nobody knows what that's like. And, and there I was. I, I stuck out like a one soldier in, in, in a place there. I knew nothing about it. But they were so gracious and so kind, the people in Kingsport, Tennessee. And it was the start of my career, and they made a big deal out of it. And all these players saying, who is this strawberry they talking about? He's supposed to be this great player. And, you know, I, come, I get there, and I struggle. And, and um, they, they write about, well, he's not really that good. And, and then I come my next year and go to Lynchburg, Virginia. So I was in Lynchburg, Virginia, and I just stayed home, and I started smoking marijuana every day, and I just went AWOL. And they wrote an article in the paper, and then the player development for the minor leagues came down to see me and wanted to know what was wrong. And I told them I was going to quit. I said, I just don't feel like I'm capable of doing this, and I just don't think this baseball's for me. Uh, I just thought there was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of things being said. And I just told them I couldn't do it anymore. How were you introduced to drugs? Well, that took place in my rookie year. 1983 when I came up and it was on my first road trip after we were headed on the road. And then one of the veteran players says, kid, you're in the big leagues now. We're going to show you what the big leagues like. I said, cool, because I got low self-esteem. I've made it to the big leagues. I want to fit in. 
I want to be a part of what the guys are all about. So he says, go go to the back of the plane. So I go to the back of the plane, and he's, there it was. I said, this is it. This is big leagues. Hit it. I said, yeah, I'm going to hit it. And there it was, cocaine. And I hit it, and I liked it. You know, because I got issues. I got a uniform on, but I got real issues inside. And I, I know that. I just want to fit in and be a part of what these guys are really all about. So I go back, and I hit it, and then I liked it, and then... They said, tonight, you're going with us. When you get to the hotel, drop your bags off. Or, matter of fact, don't worry about dropping your bags. Just give them to the bellman. We go out to dinner. I said, great. And I go out to the dinner with the guys. And, you know, we go to the big dinner. And there's wine drinking and, you know, dinner steak. You know, you're eating steaks now. You know, it's not hamburgers no more. You're eating, you know, in the top restaurants. And, you know, the wine is flowing around the table. And, and like, Rook, you kids, you can have what you want. I was like, really? I said, give me a double on the rocks then. I want to be a part of this. And then I go out to the club with them. And I think to myself, there we go. We're all, you know, most of them are all married. Wives are back home because we all just left and we left the wives back home and stuff. And give them a kiss as we on the bus and here it is, we're on the road and we go to the, have dinner and then we go to the club and then I see them in the club and they got all these women around them. And they say, this is the life. I said, this is what I've been looking for. And this is the life I want to be a part of. Now I can really escape from who I really am and I can embed myself into this lifestyle here now. And, and that's what I did. I embedded myself into that lifestyle of what the big leagues were all about, play hard and party hard. I got accustomed to that lifestyle. I just got accustomed to doing it day after day. I know a lot of people watched me from a distance and, and saw me play at the match and realized how good I was. But I think a lot of people didn't know that I partied every night, that I, didn't, that I did not get any sleep, you know, half of the time. I slept, I slept most of the day when I was in the town because I knew I was playing at night and I'll ride back to the ballpark at four o'clock and we'll go to my routine, my regular routine of what it was, you know, to do as a player and play. And then I go back out that same night and I do it again. It was just a routine as for routine. And then I realized I got introduced to amphetamines. And once I got introduced to amphetamines, that was it. I mean, I got introduced to amphetamines. I tried to start taking them every day just to keep awake. I, I, I would be sitting up in front of the TV at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning looking at the lines of the TV because the greenies got me up. I had to take either to drink milk to bring me down or I was going to stay up. And how do you hit a 95-mile-an-hour fastball that way? Easy. And one thing I, I learned about baseball is baseball is never going to change. I was always a baseball player. But who am I as a man? That I didn't know. All I knew is I, after I took that baseball uniform off, I knew it was time to go party. I knew it was time to go chase women. I, I, only when I was home, most of the time in, at home in New York, I didn't go out there. Were you married at the time? I was married. Children? Children at the time. Um, and was your wife aware of what was going on when you were on the road? Yeah, she was aware. It becomes a point with a baseball player's life when he's out of control and he's going to do what he want to do. With the wives, I think they, they just basically take it, you know, because there's a lifestyle that they live in that they never never could live anywhere else. You know, they have everything they want, you know, financially. They have the homes, they have the cars, they have the money. Um, where are they going? You know, and, and, and that basically was my mentality. You can go if you want to go. It won't bother me if you go. Of course, we fought a lot. You know, there was a lot of drunken nights, you know, where I just didn't want to deal with it. And, and when I was on the road and, you know, I'd just hang up. I wouldn't even be in my room, answer the phone, and I'd just be out. Then when they called the next day, I was like, I'm tired. I got to rest. I got to play. And it became a routine. So you were pretty much going to do what you wanted to do, whether she liked it or not. You describe in your book uh, how some of these women would make their way into the locker rooms in between innings. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it was real crazy. 
the years of the 86 Mets, you know, we we're, were, like I said, we were like an animal house. You know, they had video cameras in the room that could scan across the stadium. So we would look at the videos, you know, be on the road. We look at the videos in the room because in the room, the back room, they had them over there where it scans across the stadium and we would pull girls from out of the stand. Guys would pull them, guys wouldn't be playing, you know, would pull, pull girls and, you know, and, and, and tell, tell the kids in the clubhouse, go pick this one up over here, go send her this note. Tell her come by the Mets clubhouse. Would you say that this was an atypical team, the 86 Mets, as far as that kind of behavior is concerned? Or does this kind of thing take place across the board in, in the major leagues? At that time when we were playing, I think it was it was across the board with most teams. You know, most teams had a lot of guys that, that we knew each other and, and we all really hung out in the same places. You know, when we come to Daytown, we hung out in some of the places the other players. Say I came to Philly and we hung out, we hung out. Some of the Phillies would be in the same places we're in. And and we would talk. I mean, we didn't have any animosity. The only animosity we had is when we stepped on the field. It was business when we stepped on the field. But off the field, you know, we kind of socialize as gentlemen because that's what you're supposed to do. None of us are jealous of anybody else because we're all doing the same thing and, you know, we're all making a good living for it. Uh, but when we got on the field, we were different. We we're going to whoop your butt. You're on amphetamines at this point, and you're on cocaine at this point, and alcohol. Amphetamines was real heavy at that point. Cocaine really hadn't kicked in until later, a little bit later. I was more amphetamines, alcohol every night when I played in the 80s, day after day, night after night. I mean, I couldn't go with them. I got so addicted to the amphetamines, I had to have them. Because if I didn't have them, I, feel, I, I felt like I was running out on the field and I was slow. You know, and when I took the amphetamines, they made me fast. I'm wondering, did anybody care that you were hooked on amphetamines? Did anybody in upper management know that this was going on, and did they care? Or were they only concerned about what production you had on the field? Why would they care? I mean, well, why would they worry about that? I'm quite sure Frank Cashman was always worried about me, you know, because I knew he knew I was a great player. But when you're hitting 39 home runs driving 100, not too many people care, and they want you to keep doing what you're doing. I mean, it's a business, you know, and, and the business— is about winning. And they knew I was focused and they knew whatever it was. It wasn't keeping me away from the ballpark. You know, my life off the ball field was insane. But my life on the ball field, he was focused. At what point did you know, okay, this is this is coming to a head. Things are moving downhill. I'm about to crash. At what point? there Was there a certain point or was it gradual? When did you realize that all of a sudden you were going to be on the front page for news other than what you were doing, hitting home runs and driving in runs? Well, I knew eventually one day would come to that point. When I became a free agent after my years with the Mets, I became a free agent and went to L.A. and signed a $20 million contract. And when I signed a $20 million contract, I was miserable. You know, my whole life was falling apart. I, I was losing my family, you know, because of, because of addiction. Addiction had me by the grips. It was just the beginning of the cycle of where I was headed. And once, you know, I lost my family, I went deeper into it. That's when I went deeper into the cocaine. You know, when I became a free agent and, and got out into L.A. after that first season, had a good season, ran into the wall, never been hurt, hurt my shoulder, separated my shoulder. I had to miss the first month or so out there after signing a free agent. I was miserable, and, and I just fell back. I fell back into drinking, and I fell back into every every corner of Southern California, I knew because I grew up there and I was home. So I started hitting the back roads and the back streets and I started playing the game once again and I started picking up drug and I wanted to go to a higher drug because I was losing anyway. I was losing my family. I didn't care. I had money and stuff before, but I wanted to escape from who I really was. So that's why I got, that's why I got induced to crack cocaine out in Southern California. 
and I went to a party and some girls introduced me to crack cocaine and said, why don't you try this? And when I tried that, that was it. I was off running. I didn't want to turn back. I mean, I tried to hide it, I tried to cover it up, but I was embedded in it. I was embedded in the addiction so strong it was just a matter of when is it going to come crashing down? Because I was in the off season. I was just staying home with different girls. I wasn't married no more. I was playing with all kinds of girls, and I was smoking. I had smoke outs at my house with different type of girls and stuff like that. And I was just a matter of, matter of time before it all came to head, and it, you know, it all come crashing down. And a few years later, that's what happened. It started. It started crashing down. You know, I started getting addicted to everything because I, you know, I was addicted to the amphetamines when I was playing still, and I was addicted to smoking crack, and then I got introduced to crystal meth, and I started smoking that, I started liking that. So I was really escaping from everything. I was escaping from the reality of what's really going on inside. Was there something inside of you at that point that thought, it doesn't matter what drugs I take, I can still hit the ball out of the park? Yeah. So what? And I could. That's amazing. I could. I mean, I could go to the ballpark and I could still play and hit the ball at the ballpark. There was no question about it. I could do that. But inside, I was like, I was really, really broken. How would you describe that brokenness? Lonely. With 50,000 people watching you play every night, with girls coming at you left and right, with ball players and the camaraderie there, all of that was nothing. No, because they don't, they don't love me. They love what I can do. You know, I knew everybody around me didn't love me. I knew they were, they loved me because I could play. They loved me because I had the stuff. You were only as good as your last hit. Yeah. I mean, all that was great because I can do all these things. You know, I could put on a uniform and he could play. He's a star. You know, he's this. You know, inside, you know, I used, sometimes I used to get up, you know, when warm up for a game and everything, and these people cheering and yelling, and I'm saying to myself, they don't really, they, if they only knew. You know, if they only knew what's going on in my life right now. Did you confide in anybody? No. I was afraid to talk to people because then people start judging. You know, they say they will help you. But the thing I learned in that business is you're not supposed to have problems. You're making a lot of money. You got a talent. So why do you have problems? That's what people look at. At what point did your, did your addiction become public? Oh, well, I think it became public when I missed a game, the freeway series, L.A. against the Angels, and I didn't show up. I went out that night before. I hit a home run the night before, and we were supposed to play the next day, and I didn't show up. And I was out all night, and I ended up out using crystal meth all night smoking, and I couldn't make it the next day. I didn't show up, and that they realized. And when I didn't show up and they called, and when I finally came back home later that night, uh, I talked to the general manager. I told him I had a problem with drugs, and I needed to get some help. And what did he do? He agreed. Did he get you help? Well, I did it myself. Me and my agent did it ourselves. You know, I went into the Betty Ford Center. That was the first time I really acknowledged the fact that I really have a serious problem. I just can't stop using. How old were you, Daryl, at that time when you entered the Betty Ford Clinic? I think I was just in my prime of early 30s. Your career was peaking at that point. My career was peaking, but my life was falling because I really got embedded into all the drugs. I mean, when you start, when you start using all types of drugs, you're really at that point where you just don't really care no more. I'm smoking crystal meth. I'm smoking crack one night. I'm taking amphetamines. I'm drinking alcohol. So you're accumulating a lot of different drugs going into your system. So what happens there is you need more of this and you need more of this. And that's what happened to me. I needed more of this and more of that. And I was never, I was never satisfied. I was never comfortable within my own skin without you know, having a drink or having a drug. When you went to the Betty Ford, was that publicly known at the time? That Were you there incognito or were you there? No, that was publicly known. Yeah, so the media was there and 
Watch, watching all of this. Oh yeah, the media, the media hounded me. They just tore me up in the papers. How can you be getting paid so much and be a drug addict? How long were you there? Twenty-eight days. Did you go willingly? It was a need. I needed to check myself into treatment. I needed to find out what's wrong with me. Did you find out? Well, yes, I found out. It's, I found out it's genetic. My dad was an alcoholic, and what he was doing to us, and I said I would never do. I was doing the same thing to my family. He was abusing us. I was abusing my family. It's interesting you said earlier in this interview that when you were 13 years old and that incident with the shotgun took place, that you and your brothers determined no one will ever control me again. And uh, yet the accolades of the fans, the need to be accepted by your fellow players, the need to fit in, you've mentioned that several times, that became the controlling agent that controlled you. Eventually the drugs controlled you. Well, the drugs controlled me more than anything else. It wasn't a success it wasn't the cheers, it wasn't the boo. It was a drug that, that came into my life and dominated me more than anything. Than my father could ever dominate me or anybody else. What, I, what anybody else could say about me really didn't matter. It was the drug that came into my life that allowed me to escape from everybody so I wouldn't have to feel. Was the Betty Ford experience the end of your career? No, it wasn't the end of my career. So you went back to playing ball? Went back to playing ball. And back to drugs? Back to drugs, yeah. If you don't get out of denial about addiction, you can never recover. You know, addiction is so powerful and destroys anything and everything around it. Because when you are very active as an addict, you don't care about nobody but yourself. You're selfish, self-centered. It really doesn't matter what anybody else has to say or think. And when you're in the midst of using, it will take you to places that you can never imagine. And it will keep you longer than you want to stay. Tracy, in your book, when you meet Daryl, you say that you are a recovering addict. What kind of drugs were you using? What had really taken its hold on you? And what were you breaking free from? Alcohol, for sure, was always a strong one in my life. And crystal meth, crack cocaine, those are three powerhouses. So those three powerhouses, if I could choose, I would choose those at the time. But addiction comes to a place of it's no longer about the specific drug. Sometimes I think we need to be careful not to glamorize the drug so much because what drug did you use? Anything that you had in front of me, anything that's going to change, shut this mind off, anything that's going to give me the license to not have to check in today, tonight, ever, anything that is going to change who I am. And because I physically can't change who I am, I need that drug, whatever it is, name it what you want to, to change my reality because I can't handle reality. I can't handle life on life's terms. I can't handle pressure. I don't know who I am and I'm running from someone or something and I don't even understand what that is. The harder drugs just seem to take you further away, but you wake up from them all if you're lucky enough to do so, because not everyone makes it. So whether you're an alcoholic or you're a drug addict, they're both serious. They will steal your life. People physically die from them. So for me, it was anything that I could take so I could just check out. And one of the things that you were checking out from was you described your marriage, that it was falling apart. You had three babies. Um, and so now your life is a train wreck and you're more confused about who you are and what your purpose is. And the drugs have a way of filling up that hole in you. So we're going to fast forward um, some. What were some of the things that you lost as a result of drug addiction in your life? I lost any sense of a moral compass 
that I could possibly have. All bets are off. That means no matter how guilty I feel about it or how much I know that it's wrong, it doesn't matter. I'm going to participate anyway. I'm going to make decisions I never, ever thought I would make. I lost my mind. I lost my sense of being. I lost my soul, the inside of myself. But the greatest thing that I lost were my children. Because it would eventually take me to a place where I loved them so much, but I wasn't capable of loving. I didn't have the character on the inside of me that allows a person to be able to care for them. When you're selfish and self-centered, it's all about you. You always take first place. And there is a battle and a torment that goes on inside of me, at least. And I know many addicts and alcoholics that I work with, they describe the same thing. It is a torment. It's a battle you can't explain. How can you love your children so much or love people so much and they love you, even people who genuinely love you. Why is that not enough? Why is it not enough? And the answer to that question is, number one, I never had a realistic definition of love. I just looked at my parents and thought, you just go out and do this thing and it naturally happens. Nor did I know or understand, you know what? Not everybody in this world is going to like you. You know what? This world is a really tough place to live. My whole life was about what I wanted and what I desired and what was going to make me feel good. And if I couldn't get that feeling, then I'm going to check out because I don't want to deal. I don't want to listen. I don't want to listen to people who are trying to teach me how to learn and live this thing called life. So I'm rejecting you. I'm in denial thinking that just one day this is going to take care of itself on its own. And that's a very dangerous place to be, not only for yourself, but for all of those who are trying to love you around you. And that's something I could not see until I embraced recovery and decided to get well. And that's that's a question that I'm thinking of people that I've talked to who have family members that they love that are addicted to drugs. Why are you making this decision? You say you love me, and yet you know the drugs are going to destroy us, you know, a child to a parent. You say you love me, and yet you can't give up those drugs for me so you can be here with me. It's because it's all about me. And, and so the love for another person doesn't even seem to have anything to do with your decisions once you are hooked on drugs. That's right, because we can't even make a decision. We're so feeling driven. I was in such a place to where my feelings either measure up, and if they don't measure up, and if you're not who I need you to be, I don't need you. Selfishness and self-centeredness is so serious and so severe. You said that you lost your children because of drug addiction. How long after that did you decide, this is it, this is enough, I, I need to get my life back, I need to get a life, and drugs have, can't be a part of that? I got clean and sober a little bit actually before I signed over custody of my children. I came to a pivotal point in my life where I started to have this awareness after I stepped out of denial because it's not right not to get help. We do not have the right as human beings to hurt ourselves and especially to hurt others to such a capacity. We don't have that right. That's not the way it should be. I didn't have the right to harm my children that way. And it came to that because I would not get help. I would not say yes. I would not say yes. When I finally said yes, I started to get well. And that's difficult. And I think a lot of people check out of their wellness or their recovery process because it's so painful in the beginning. Because for the first time, you start to open your eyes and you start to see life through real glasses, through reality, and you begin to see the harm 
that you've done to others. And I started to see the harm that I did to my children. But I wasn't stable enough yet. I didn't trust myself enough to stick to the process. I was so unstable. One minute I was willing, the next minute I was not. Because those feelings, we struggle so desperately. Those feelings are powerful. You can't explain it to anyone unless you've had to break free from that. I didn't trust myself not to do this to them again. So I made that painful decision because I didn't believe I was going to stay. I wanted to, but I thought, I don't know how I'm going to be able to do this. So what you're saying is as you're going into recovery, it's like a light goes on and you're seeing the reality of what people who love you were trying to tell you about your life and the damage that you were causing. And as you're coming out of recovery, you're fearful that you won't be able to stay clean and care for these children the way that they needed to be cared for. So while you're in a sane moment, you're saying, I I need to make this decision while I'm thinking clearly for my children's sake. I need to do what's best for them and I need to do it quickly because an addict's mind changes from moment to moment. That's why we're incapable of love. I can't get out of my own way because it's still all about me. And why I have this moment of clarity, I make this decision that to this day will never, ever be right in my soul. It will never be right in my soul, but it was the right decision. It will never feel right, but it was the right decision. And it was a selfless decision that I had to make. And another transition that my children were forced to make. And a regret and a shame that comes along with the right decision. Here's another battle of the feelings. What kind of woman does this? Who loses their children? Who lets their children go? That battle that goes on inside of you, the grip of addiction, the power that the enemy has over you, this power that you can't break, that you can't shake, losing my children, losing my life. Every day that goes by that you don't get help, the enemy steals another day. He steals another day. He steals another memory. And every day that goes by is another day of destruction and damage and defeat. And the pain of getting better, that pain, you're at least making pay and it's making strides and you're getting better. And eventually that pain starts to level out and you grow. So you were in recovery. Were you able to stay in recovery? Yes, I never relapsed. So let's talk about what was the key for you in addressing that hole in your heart as you began this recovery journey. The awareness of honestly what I was doing to other people. I had to get honest about that. And when I had to sign over custody of my kids, it's something I'll never forget. It was such a price to pay, not just for myself, for them. That's a consequence. And we rack up so many consequences. So when I came to a place and a point of realizing that this is never going to get better, that it's not okay for me to expect everyone just to serve me and to understand my disease. Well, I have a disease. Well, how long can that excuse take place? And I'm not saying that it's not a disease, but when you keep going on with that and you choose not to get help, it is now another excuse that I embraced. It's an excuse. It's a disease. It's a disease. Well, it's a disease that has a cure that we can be arrested from. It's a disease where there's so much help out there that you can get the help. And I got the help, but you have to stay on course. You have to stay on course. No matter how you feel, you don't check out. No matter how I feel, I don't pick up a drink or a drug. And then you have to learn how to deal. You have to learn how to deal. So when the feelings come, you have to learn how to deal. And then you have to learn how to heal. It's a painful process. There's too much at stake. 
families are torn apart. And when you step out of denial and you can see the destruction that you're creating because you won't say yes, this is different than going in, I believe, with a cancer diagnosis or something of that nature where you have to go in and and get your chemo. and, And there's a different dynamic to that altogether. It's a physical disease where, yes, you have to go in and you have to participate in your treatment. You have to do that. But for addiction and alcoholism, there is a plan that we follow, that we get help from the inside out and changing from the inside out is so important. And we just have to say yes. And we just have to keep saying yes, because every day you say yes, you're healing, you're getting better. It's working. The diagnosis is coming back. It's working. I have another day. I said yes. The diagnosis is coming back. You're beating this thing. I said yes again today. I'm beating this thing. I'm beating this thing. I'm beating this thing. Every day that you say yes, and participate is the key. You're getting well, and the diagnosis is going to change, and you will overcome this thing. Tracy, why don't you describe how you and Daryl met? We met at a Narcotics Anonymous convention, and I was there with a lot of friends, just hoping to have a good time, and I really didn't want to be there. And there was this huge crowd just gathering around this certain area. And all of a sudden, I heard people running around saying, oh, my gosh, do you know who's here? Do you know who's here? Daryl Strawberry's here. You know, Tracy, Daryl Strawberry's over there. I'm like, I don't care if Daryl Strawberry's over there. And I just looked over there, and I saw this huge crowd. And the first thing that came to my mind was, how sad. How sad. There's a reason why people are like, people like us are at a place like this. And one of the first things they teach you is anonymity, how it's so important to safeguard the person because we're sick and we need a safe place to go. I had one year clean and sober and I was doing everything they told me to do, you know, working the steps and going to meetings and sponsoring people and doing everything I was supposed to do, not picking up the drink or the drug and all these other kinds of things. But I was not well inside. I was not whole inside. So when I saw this going on, I thought, you know what, this program thing is not for me. I'm just, this is how it is. And I see Daryl and I kind of walk over because he's sitting next to an individual who has my car keys. This is how ironic this is, is we know there are no mistakes. So I walk over there. I said, I've had enough of this. This is enough. I'm done with this freak show, as I called it. And I walked over and there was Daryl. He was so frail coming in off the street from using, so skinny, sunken in, just was part of the upholstery, part of the fabric of the chair. So sick, but still answering the demands of the people, signing autographs, taking pictures. Um, it, it, was, it was a ridiculous scene. It, was, it sickened me. It saddened me. I felt so sad for him because I'm like, here they are. They're trying to pull from this player that doesn't even exist anymore. He doesn't even play anymore. And this man is losing his soul. He is dying. And I think it can kind of show us just, again, how selfish we can be. I want mine. I want what it is. And here he is trying to get well. And he's just sick. Certainly not the big home run hitter that used to hit all these home runs. Almost unrecognizable, I would say. And Daryl, how do you remember that moment? Well, I remember that moment clear because I was very sick. She was clean. She had a year clean. I had just came off of like a four or five day binge of smoking crack that I was on the streets. And I was coming to this N.A. convention and there was, like Tracy was explaining, the fact that so many people were pulling at me because of the trophies and the all-star games and the fame and the fortune. And and there I was, I was just dying. And I was just like, I can't believe I'm at a N.A. convention. Why don't I just die? Then comes along the fact that, you know, me and Tracy get introduced by a friend and we get into a conversation. We start talking and, and I just really, really liked her. 
because she wasn't talking about baseball. You know, so many people were talking about taking a picture and all the great things you accomplished. And, and she was talking about life and she was talking about real things of like why we were here because we were hurting. You know, I could hear the pain inside of her because I had the pain inside of me. The, the pain was dwelling inside of me because I'm trying to, you know, get myself on the right track and trying to get my life together. My life is falling apart. My life is down in the bottom of the pits. I'm just coming back from smoking crack. She's clean and all these other people are clean here at Recovery Convention. And um, here it is. I'm just coming back in trying to do this all over again. And the conversation was real. It was it was a heart filling conversation that really made me say, wow, there's something about her. You know, she's very sincere. She's not talking about baseball career. She's not talking about, you know, you're great or anything like that. And it was great to just have a normal conversation with someone for for change. So the two of you meet, what happened next? Tracy, why didn't you run for the hills? Because looking at Daryl didn't scare me because I was Daryl, just in a female body. I knew exactly what he embodied. Um, I knew the darkness. I knew the brokenness. I knew the desperation. And there's a very familiar, safe place there. When you are talking about things that you've done and pain you've experienced, that's not a normal conversation you can have with just anybody. So there, we could relate to one another. We felt safe and it was comforting to be able to talk to somebody and that person accept you and that person want to be around you and not judge you. So there was an attraction that started to develop immediately because of the acceptance in a safe place. Didn't you warn her not to get involved with you? I did. I warned her that um, you do not want to get involved with me. I have just been through two families, two marriages, like tornadoes uh, because of my addiction. Destroyed five kids' lives uh, because of my addiction, and I wasn't nothing to play with. And I, I told her that from the beginning. She always say I left out the details, but I did warn her, you know, that, that you may end up seeing a tornado if you get involved with me. Can you describe, Tracy, what followed? What was your relationship like in the, the months following this meeting? Very toxic. People will always ask, what was your dating time like? We didn't date. It was very toxic. We exchanged phone numbers, and I didn't pick up his call for like two weeks because I knew he was sick. I knew we were both in a very bad place that we needed to be well. And I really was trying to change my life because I knew relationships, that's the second most powerful one. Well, if I can't have a drug or a drink, a relationship is the next thing I want to gravitate to for the next filling of this hole that you can't seem to understand understand and get away from. So again, we're not well inside. There's not enough that has changed on the inside for us to be capable of functioning in a dating relationship. There is zero character there. We are full of character defects. They're called character defects for a reason because they make you defective in everything that you touch. It creates dysfunction. So we go on this long cycle of now I'm attached to him. Now I'm going to save him. And we have these great conversations on the phone, but then he goes missing for a couple days. Great conversations on the phone. He goes missing for a couple days. People don't know where to find the great Daryl Strawberry because it's all about a media thing. I don't care about the media. All I care, I'm so desperate to get well, I could care less. And I don't want him to die. So I'm going and I'm kicking down doors of crack houses where I know, I know the neighborhoods he's going to be because I was in those. So I thought, well, you know what? We are who we are. We're not that hard to figure out. So let me just do some drive-bys and drive around. And sure enough, I would find him there and I would literally go 
in and I'm trying to be his savior. And that's another toxic behavior. It's called codependency. Um, You're going to get well whether you want to get well or not. And many parents and loved ones, that's what we do. You know, we try to become the savior. So it was a very toxic, toxic, destructive cycle. When she would come into these crack houses to pull you out, what were you thinking when you saw her? I was thinking to myself, she's crazier than I am for the fact of um, actually coming to these places. I mean, I know I'm here because I'm using and she's clean. Why would she come looking for me to pull me out of these places? We're definitely in love. It was lust at first sight or lost at first sight, you know, but we, we really loved each other. We respected each other because we actually got a chance to know what was inside each other. And we got we got a chance to like really talk about the real pain of who we are. And she listened to me, you know, and she knew I was in pain and she knew I had a lot of issues and she knew I was hurt and she knew I was angry. And she just knew that there was a lot of things that that were built up inside of me that I just wasn't dealing with. And she was on the road of dealing with her things, but I wasn't on the road of dealing with my things. And so I could understand why she would come and get me because she knew I wasn't dealing. And she was just like, come in there and she goes, get your stuff Get out of here. Now, get in the car. I was like looking at her and she said, don't even say it, don't even look. And she was just like, get in the car. And I would get in and I would cry. And she was just like, you need to stop crying. If I could suit up and show up and I got these kids to take care of, you could do the same thing. You just won't take responsibility. And I'm just looking at her and then she's over there. She starts crying. I look out the window. I say, God, she's crazier than I am. So how long did this go on? Because I know that there was a turning point for you in your own heart. Tracy, I think that point came to you first. So how long did all this, the rescuing and him running back and rescuing, all of that? I'll never do it again, the typical facade. And you're going to do it again. If you don't change on the inside, you're going to do it again. And that's what kept happening. So I came to a place, a pivotal place. I had worked too hard to change my life. And I knew that if I didn't let this go, I was starting to lose myself again. I could start seeing this dysfunction overcoming my life and trying to save him. I was getting sicker than the one I was trying to save. And I was starting to lose myself again. And I had paid the price already. I had lost too much. And I had to let him go. I had to let him go. People cannot change people. No matter how much you love them, no matter how much you want to change them, until they say yes and make that decision to embrace this wholeness process, you cannot save them and you cannot change them. And that was a very painful reality. I couldn't love him out of it. Nobody could love me out of it. My children couldn't even love me out of it. That's the power of this thing. That's the power of defeat. It's defeat and called defeat and destruction for a reason. And Daryl and I, the problem was we were relational, but we could not revolutionize each other's lives. We were comfortable and comfortable is a very dangerous place when you have zero character. When you have no character, you have no boundaries. And I finally had to make another boundary and say, I've got to let you go because you're dragging me back down and I don't want to go to that place anymore. So he had stolen my car and was out using again this this cycle the story is the same it's all the same he's in a place and I finally have had it and um, he steals my truck and I'm at real estate school I have to walk home I know where an extra pair of keys is I have a friend go and drive me over I pick up the truck I go back home I pick up everything he's storing in my garage because he's really not living with me because he's lying saying he's living with me but he's out using I'm his excuse now so I pack up everything he has in the garage and I drive to that very place he was and I just dumped it all out on the front yard I had to do something extreme I just had to be done with it it 
was like, oh, my gosh, you can't do that. What are you going to put it in storage? What are you going to do that? You know, if I had to clean up another mess of his, I was going to lose who I was. You got yourself in that mess. I had myself in that mess. I had to learn how to take care. I had to sue up, suit up, show up, grow up, take responsibility for my life. That's how I got out. Guess what? You've created another situation for yourself with as much as I love you and want you to change. I have a realization at that moment I can't change you. I've got to cut ties, throw everything out in the front lawn, and I leave. Daryl, what did you do? Nothing. I just left the stuff out there, and I continued to smoke crack. I was still in the midst of my addiction, so I wasn't really concerned about it. I was more concerned about the fact that I wanted to get high. And I would say, well, you know, maybe that's it. You know, maybe she's done with me. And it was very sad, you know, because after I finished getting high, I came down. It was a very sad, sad time for me because I started reflecting on the fact that here I am again, I've hurt somebody else. You know, I just didn't want to hurt people anymore. I just, you know, I was doing the same thing to Tracy that I had done to the other two wives, you know. I just, it just became very saddening to me that I, that I was still that same person. I was selfish, self-centered, very sick, didn't care, wasn't about who they were, it was about who I was. And that's where we end up at, as people that's in the midst of addiction. You end up, it's all about you. It's not about others. You don't care about how they feel and what they're going through. Um, you're more concerned about how you feel and what you're going through. You know, from that place there, you know, I had I had to move forward. I had to uh, come to reality that, you know, I, I got to get my life together. I got to try to figure out a way to get on track. And I, even after that, I didn't get on track. You know, me and Tracy had went through some, some more issues. She left and went out of town and, and left me home once again and trusting me and thinking that I was doing the next right thing. And there I was, I was using again. Not only was I using cocaine again, now I stuck a needle in my arm and shot heroin for the first time. And I think that just kind of floored her. She was back home in Missouri with her kids and her family visiting. And there I was riding around in her car and I'm, I'm floating off of heroin now uh, for like two or three days. And she's just like, this is it, you know. She decided from there that it's time to get out of Florida. It's time to do something different. She's like, I don't know where you're going, but I'm leaving Florida. And I was like, I don't know where I'm going. You know, we just went back and forth. And she's like, I'm going to Missouri. I'm leaving. She says, I'm going home to Missouri, back to my family. If you want to go, you can go. I'm using. I don't have nothing. I don't even have a driver's license. Three million in debt when we started. And she's like, you can go if you want to go, but I was like, I'm not going to Missouri. I say no black folks living in Missouri, but I'm trying to use every excuse I can, <laughs> you know, because I'm sick. And she's like, I'm out of here. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying, and this is it. And we went back and forth and, and we went through that whole thing. And, and she decided that, that that was the change that she needed to make for herself to go back home and start over. She, was, she decided that I'm going to leave everything here. Y'all can have everything, furniture, whatever y'all want. She's like, I'm gone. We went through that whole transition of leaving there and going there, and, and that's, that's when our real journey started on our life, you know, from there. I went to Missouri, and we, we said we're going to get in church, and we're going to start following God principles, and we started getting in church. And um, Tracy started reading the book, the good book, the Bible. She was reading it every day, and she would wake up one morning, and she said, no, you know, I've been studying God's Word, and we're talking about living right, and she woke up one morning and looked at me. I'm still sick, you know, not using, but still sick, depressed, and she's like, we're talking about doing this right, and we're, we're not married, and we're shacking up. And she woke up, and she looked at me one morning, and she says, we ain't having sex no more. And I said, what? She said, that's it. And I said, I'm, I guess I'm out of here. She said, I think that's what you need to do. And that's what happened. That's where our split came. We didn't know if we'd ever get, get back together or anything. But she she had got well. She had started getting well with God. And then I went away, and I stayed in my sister's house in California, and I started 
getting well with God. I went to a consecration with God for six months, you know, with nothing, no drugs, no women, no alcohol, no nothing. I just stopped everything. I started going to church, started reading the Bible, and Tracy was doing the same thing in St. Louis. Then God sent me back, and we went back together, and came back together, and we got married, and we started living right. And then we started on a journey there together. Tracy, when Daryl and you come to grips with faith, and faith in Christ in particular, how do you ever trust him again? Uh, Daryl, when I read your book, it, it became apparent you would start doing the right thing, then you do the wrong thing, the right thing, the wrong thing, up, down, up, down. How do you know that right now as you're sitting here, right there beside him, how do you know you can trust him? He's proven himself trustworthy. How? By doing the right thing over and over and over again. And he's proven himself trustworthy because he's a changed man. What does that mean when you say he's a changed man? I know what that means, but somebody sitting here uh, listening to this right now may not know what you're talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. He completely surrendered his life to Jesus Christ and said, I'm done. And he made the decision to embrace not just saying a simple prayer or not just saying, Jesus, you're the savior of the world. And boom, this miraculous thing happens. And there's a miraculous spiritual thing that happens, but we have no idea what that is. And he got serious. He changed his people, places and things. He started making changes. He picked up the Bible and started to read the Bible after a while and after some time, because I was a spouse and waiting for a long time. So we're talking about the forefront of the relationship. We're way ahead. but And he got serious about Christ, learning the word of God and making the hard decisions when he didn't want to and started digging and looking at this pain, but not only looking at the pain, more importantly, started looking at the greatness of who God says that he is. Because sometimes we can look at all of our character defects and all these things that are wrong with us. If you don't look at what you're trying to achieve, your greatness, you'll fall back again. I am who God says I am. He started to learn who that is. He learned that God had a purpose for his life. He started setting those things aside and the word of God changes you from the inside out. The power of the Holy Spirit comes in and does a work in us that not a program, not a person, not a support group. God created us and the great creator, you have to give him permission to come in and redesign you from the inside out because he designed you for greatness with greatness in the first place. And the enemy comes in and destroys you from the inside out. That needs to be reconstructed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not a human, nothing in this earth can do that except for him. Daryl, you said that uh, you were reading scripture, trying to get your life right with the Lord. Uh, What would you say to somebody who's skeptical about foxhole religion, so to speak? If they're not where you at, I've learned, it's not that I'm better than but if they're not where you at from a biblical standpoint and in God's commandments, they don't understand. It says my people perish because of lack of knowledge. All I wanted to know was who Jesus is. I didn't care about the baseball. I didn't care about the newspapers. I didn't care about the money. I had all that. All that didn't work. I wanted to know when I started reading this Bible, I wanted to know who this man Jesus was because, you know, it was such a great attraction to reading about him and reading about the things that he walked along 2,000 years ago and how he was doing, healing people and, and, and loving people and teaching people. And then to find out he's still doing that today. He's still doing that today, right now, today. And people don't even know that. And you know, you know the greatest thing that I learned about it? Everything else I needed to pay for, 
doctors, lawyers, treatment. He was free. It didn't cost me a dime. It was free. And which I tried to get a doctor to fix me. Well, you got to go to this psychiatrist, this therapist. You know, I ain't said nothing wrong with it, but I'm just saying. When I got to Jesus, when I got to Jesus in the Bible, he was like, this is free. The price is, is already paid for your life. I've already, I've already finished it. All you got to do is walk in it. That's when I realized that heaven has opened up. You know, there was no more. There was there was no more of me even thinking about being earthly minded. I needed to become a kingdom minded person, and I just embedded myself in it, and I just kept embedding myself in it. And then I just they say, well, why do you why do you know so much now? Because first of all, I don't debate with people, and I eat the word. I eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and it makes all the difference in who I am today. Because God wants us. God speaks to all of us different because we all come from different places, and He has to speak to us right where we are. So. So, you know, the critics are going to always be there. The critics was there when I was hitting home runs and saying I, they, they were saying I wasn't doing enough when I was hitting 39 home runs and driving 100. The critics was there when I fell and they said I was a drug addict, I was a loser. Now the critics are going to come, says, oh, now he's into the Bible. He didn't turn, he's a religion person, you know, now, you know. And um, just hopefully, um, hopefully my light, you know, will be a, a shiny light to them where I don't have to say anything, I don't have to debate. And, and hopefully it would have an effect on their life and, and maybe one day they would come to know who Jesus is also too. Daryl and Tracy, there is so much more to your story, but your declaration of love for Jesus and his word is a good place for us to end our time together. I encourage listeners to realize that Daryl and Tracy share their story of redemption with hope that many will hear and want to know Jesus too. To learn more about their story, visit markinc.org, where you'll find links to their website, as well as many more interviews that offer help and hope for the hurting in our Learning to See When the Lights Go Out audio library. Tracy signs her correspondence with a statement, Till the whole world knows. What is it that the strawberries want the whole world to know? That Jesus is the only pathway to healing and wholeness. Whether your struggle is with drugs, alcohol, a loved one who is addicted, depression, grief, Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. You can know the same healing that Daryl and Tracy have experienced, and it's our hope that their story will be one more step in leading you to Him. This moving and informative interview was produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. To contact Mark Inc. Ministries for more information on other resources, call us toll-free at 877-MARK-INC. That's 877-627-5462. Visit us online at markinc.org to see what other free resources are available for Mark Inc. Ministries. Our message today comes from the Learning to See When the Lights Go Out series and is designed to offer help and hope to those who have been struck by the pain from a variety of sources. If you or someone you know or love is struggling, you are likely to find a Mark Inc. Ministries resource on that topic to offer a bit of hope to that pain. That website again is markinc.org. You can also contact Chuck and Sharon Betters in care of Mark Inc. Ministries at 2880 Summit Bridge Road, Bear, Delaware, 19701. Mark Inc. Ministries, making abundant riches known in the name of Christ.